You're listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author Sarah Box, where you get the inside scoop on the steps action takers and decision makers take to align their purpose to their principles and achieve their goals in business and life. We focus on the mantra, no labels, no limits, no excuses. Each week, you'll hear from remarkable guests who have overcome challenges and obstacles to succeed in the face of adversity. By listening to their stories, you'll get practical tips, tools, and resources you can implement today to bust through your own internalized prisons of worry and doubt. And now, without further ado, please welcome your commanding coach with plenty of chutzpah and heart, Sarah Box. Welcome to this episode of the No Labels, No Limits podcast, a podcast all about helping action takers and decision makers like you align their purpose to their principles and achieve their goals in business and life. Hi, I'm Sarah from Sarah Box Coaching and Consulting. I'm a change agent, former executive director, and best-selling author of The Changemaker Ripple Effect, a book about how one person's drive, purpose, and boldness can impact thousands. And I'm here to tell you that the life you want is possible with the right support, mindset, and strategy. And on today's podcast, you're going to hear a lot more about that. We're going to be joined by Dr. Callie Estes, founder of The Addictions Coach and host of the Unpause Your Life podcast. Kelly's a highly sought after addiction therapist and life and corporate coach who helps a wide range of individuals to treat addiction as well as the mental conditions holding them back from reaching their full potential. Her clients include professional athletes, actors and musicians, and world traveling corporate executives and politicians. If that isn't enough, Kelly is also the author of three books. Her most recent release is The Seven Key Principles to tapping into the wealth inside you. In this episode, you'll hear about Callie's early experiences, including her dad holding a gun to her head to play Russian roulette, no joke, being homeless in Miami after losing a multi-million dollar business and marrying an addict, and how all of that brought her to the work she does today. She's also gonna talk to us about what inner wealth is and the principles we need to tap into to live fully. We'll reveal the power of mindset and how Callie helps individuals find more freedom, income, and inner peace, and why our past doesn't define our future. So now, let's welcome our guest, Dr. Callie Estes. Hi, Callie. Hi. Thank you for having me. Well, glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, before we dive in, the audience and I want to know what is one non-negotiable ritual or practice you do every day that keeps you heading toward your big vision? I go to the gym every single day. That is my me time. I turn my phone on silent. I put my music on and an hour of whatever I want to do, whether it's stretch or work on the spin bike or take a class. That is my time, my downtime. Everybody knows unless you're bleeding from the eyes, I'm not answering you. Kelly is off limits. (laughs) <laughs> I am for oh, one hour. Nice. That's my time. Do you do that at a particular time of day? It's usually when I've had enough, as strange as it sounds. Like I'll get up and I'll work. And usually around two o'clock, I'm like, you know what? I've had enough email, enough clients, enough marketing, enough dogs, enough cooking. And I go. Uh, my only exception is there is a really awesome Zumba class on Monday night at 5.45. So I kind of have to wait for the Zumba class. But other than that, I usually go in the afternoon. Wow, that's great. 
Can you share, let's start because that was very provocative about your dad and the gun and Russian roulette. Um, so I personally want to know a little bit more about your entire background, specifically that and how that brought you to the work that you're doing today. So when I was growing up, my father, uh, he's bipolar. He was misdiagnosed as schizophrenic and of course, given the wrong medication. So he would have violent mood swings and he was uh, one one week, happy, excited, amazing, and three weeks, horrible. And in that three-week window, he would be suicidal. He would be homicidal. I remember times where he would say, I'm, you know, you're kicked out. And I was eight or nine packing my stuff in my lunch bag. That's all I knew what to do. And standing outside waiting for whatever was supposed to come next. But he would frequently sort of torture me with different things. And one was playing Russian roulette. And he would load a 22 and put a, put a bullet in there and spin it. And he would put it to my head and pull the trigger and put it to his head and pull the trigger and think it was funny at the time. And it, as strange as it sounds, people go, oh my goodness, that's horrible. It actually taught me something. And it taught me how to be resilient. And it taught me how to be tougher in the times of things I couldn't control. Whether or not that outcome is going to happen, I still have to weather that storm and understand that I'm either going to make it or not make it. And there's nothing I could do about it. So, and it's interesting because my sister and I had similar upbringings, but her takeaways are totally different from mine. My takeaways became how strong can I be? You know, how much education can I get? And how quickly can I get away from these crazy people? And hers became how can I get married and make kids and live three doors down? So we had such complete opposite responses to stimulus. It's so interesting. That takes me down a whole other line of questions, but I'm going to wait. I'm not going to go there yet because you may actually address it throughout the interview, but boy, okay. But then what about your business? Because here you are a successful businesswoman today, which is how I'm meeting you, mm -hmm. right? And, and this is a thing like with social media and podcast, all you know is the person who shows up in that moment. You don't know what got them to this point. Right. So I'm really curious how you created this multi-million dollar business and then basically what happened to crash it and you ending up homeless. Were those at the same time or sequential or different? That was the economic downturn of 2008. So growing up, I was very poor and we were, groceries were, were once every two weeks. And if you ran out of food, you ate ketchup and a piece of bread. That's what you did. So there was no other option. And I would come up with these little side hustles at 12 and 13 years old. And I would, I created a newspaper before the computer and I would handwrite it and go around and knock it on doors and sell it for a dollar. And then I uh, did a big talent show. I think I was 13, maybe 14. All the neighborhood kids come do talent show and I charged their parents to get in. And then I made my sister bake cupcakes and I sold those and I kept all the money. And I made a couple hundred dollars and I was like, wow, this I like, this is my ticket out. So as a kid, I had this entrepreneurial streak and I would make baked goods at Christmas and Easter and sell them to everybody. And this was before you could go get cookie dough in the, in the chilled section. And I used to sell cookie dough. I'd make all of it and put it in a tub and I would use the plastic pumpkins that they had at, at Halloween. And I would, I would save them when they went on sale the, you know, the day after. And I filled them up with cookie dough and I would sell them at Christmas. And I make a couple, couple hundred bucks again. So I always had that streak and I turned 17 and I bolted. I was like, I'm out. And I went and learned massage therapy and I started doing that. And I went and learned yoga and I started teaching that. And then I went back to college. I couldn't afford to go. So I had to wait and I went back and my whole first semester, I had no books because I didn't have any money. I was waiting for my student loan to hit. And when it did, I took all my money and threw it in a CD 
and the money I wasn't using. And I literally like starved myself through college to make it. These are some funny stories. We used to sneak into the cafeteria to eat so we could save our money and all that kind of crazy stuff. And then when I graduated, I was still broke. Like here I am with a bachelor's in psychology and I still can't pay my rent. So I applied to get my master's and I got it for free. I actually won an assistantship up against 30 other people in the econ department and my degree was free. So I took out a small loan to live, got that under my belt. And then I said, you know what? I'm done. I packed up my stuff and I moved to Texas and started a fitness company with a friend of mine. And we had nothing, no furniture. We took a one bedroom apartment and we split it up. So one of us had the bedroom, one of us had the living room as a bedroom. And we flipped over this plastic container that had our clothes in it and put up a computer. And that's how we started it. So we started with no money and we just built a website. And this is right when Google was just coming out. So we didn't know how to use it. We're learning it. We're learning search engine. We're learning pay-per-click. And we just put it up and we sold our first personal training deal in San Diego. And we both looked at each other and said, we don't have any trainers. Okay, now we have to figure out how to hire. So we're on Monster and Career Builder and figuring it out, putting it on a credit card. And we did it. And our first year, we had nothing. It was just him and I. We made 100 grand in the whole company. And then our second year, we got an office. And we had probably four or five staff. And we made 300000 And then we got the penthouse in Dallas on Commerce Street. We had 17 in-house staff and 1,000 independent contractors. We made $4.1 million our third year. And then the economic downturn hit, took our company, and we were in the process of moving because we had all of our stuff. We had five offices across the country. We had a downsize. And we put our stuff in this, what we thought was a moving company. And we both went back to Pennsylvania to regroup, where we're both from. And on the way there, all of our stuff burned up in a fire. So now we're in Pennsylvania, no clothes, no computer, no furniture. And we're in this house with no heat, no running water at Christmas. And all I had was my phone the crappy laptop that survived the fire, I don't know how it did, my djembe, my dog, and my car that was in repossession. And I'm sitting there looking at him and he goes, what do you want to do? And I'm like, what other company can we start? He's like, how about get a job? And I said, how about another company? And he just looked at me and I'm like, all right. So I went back to work for six months. I said, this is not for me. Not making any money. I can't stand this. So we started a PR company for musicians because we knew PR really well at that point because we had built this company. And that's how I met my husband in New York. His, his band had hired us and I said, I can't work with, you know, clients. I can't mix and mingle. And then they fired us and he asked me out. Bam, we started dating. And then I'm living in New York. I'm in Manhattan. So from there, it was like, okay. And then I went back into psychology. So I said, now I need to get back into what I studied, what I know. And I went back into the, the industry and I said, I forgot why I got out. It's low pay, high hours. I hate my boss. I hate this. And I went into private practice on 6'5 in 2012. And I said, I'm going to make a lot of money. And this started because my boss walked in one day. Now he'd pull up in his Bugatti and his wife would pull up in her Maserati or her, she had a McLaren, a Maserati and um, Mercedes. And she'd come in and she was, you know, all dressed up with her little red bottom heels. And she talked down to us. And I'm thinking to myself, the only reason you guys have any money is because we work our butts off. And he threw a notebook at my head. And I said, excuse me? And he had no education at all. And he put his hands on his hips. And he said, the only reason you had any money to live in Miami is because of me. And I went, oh, that's the wrong thing to say to me. I'm so competitive. I looked at him and I said, I have two words for you. He goes, what? F you? I said, no, I quit. And he goes, you can't quit. I said, I'm out. And I quit. He goes, but you can't leave. I need you. I'm like, too late. And I said, I can make more money in one client than I can with you in a month. 
watch me. And he goes, oh, you'll never be anything. And bam, 24 hours later, I had my first client, $3,000 check in my hand. And my husband goes, how did you do that? And I said, law of attraction. That's how I've always done it. And he looked at me and he's like, oh boy. And that's how I went back into private practice. So that's how I got back in, back in the game. Well, and that, you know, what's so interesting is I listen to you and you say kind of what your takeaways from the resiliency in your dad's, you know, illness and all of that. You can see how that's just continued to play over. Because what I see is you don't really accept like what someone else might go, oh my God, these are dire conditions. You're just like, okay, what's next? Yeah. 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 So, does that bug people sometimes that they want to be in their pity party and you're going, all right, what are we going to do? The, the whole coronavirus, everyone's calling me going, this is so bad. I'm like, wait a minute, what are you doing? Well, I'm cleaning and I'm painting and I'm binge watching TV and I'm getting fat. And I'm like, none of that is productive. Do something productive. And they look at me like, I hate you. Because <laughs> I'm over here, I'm like, I built another website. I have another section of my company. We're going to roll this out next week. And everyone is like, why? And I'm like, because I have downtime. Downtime means be creative and be productive and do something fun, but also to advance you. You shouldn't be on Facebook complaining. You're not going to get anywhere. I know. Downtime is like this precious little gift, right? Yeah. It is. I'm like, whoa, this is so awesome. I know people are suffering. I'm not denying that. But I also think that we really have to hang on to our brain, like what we're letting in, what we're feeding in and all of that, which leads me to my next question. Will you talk about limiting beliefs and limiting belief systems and how they impact us? So limiting beliefs are from childhood. And I see them a lot with my clients when there's a major stressor and they go back in time to that coping mechanism that they had as a child. So if you're taught as a child, you know, you're not smart enough or you're not educated. In my case, it was you're stupid, you're fat, you're ugly. You'll never find, this is my father, you'll never find a husband. And then my stepfather would say, well, you're not smart enough to go to college because no one goes to college. So that's a limiting belief. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I have to settle for whatever guy wants me and get a job at the mall. That's what I was taught. And I knew at 14, that didn't resonate. So I said, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to get a PhD and I'm going to go out there and make money and be important and do something to help people that I love. And that did not fit with my family's belief system. So as I started doing that, two things happened. No one would visit me and no one would acknowledge my success. So every time I did something, it was like, oh yeah, well, I don't know, you, you do fitness or, oh yeah, you wrote some book thingy. Like I wrote a book, I wrote a bestseller. Oh, okay, that's great. You wrote a book. Did you read it? Nah, we'll get it. My mother didn't even buy my first book. She's like, ah, I'll read it whenever. I'm like, why have you not read it? She said, well, I don't want to read about me. And I'm like, you need to read about you. It's in there. So limiting beliefs is you're always feeling like you need to follow someone else's path that's given to you. Now, my sister followed the path. She married the local boy she met when she was 22. One was a bartender and one was a waitress. They met. They got married. She got pregnant. She had two children. They bought the house a couple streets over from my mother and they moved in. Bam, she's a stay-at-home mom and he has a job at FedEx. She did what the family told her she was destined to do. Did not go to college, didn't write a book, didn't do anything. So as I'm building my company, I called her and I said, you're going to join me. And she goes, oh, I can't do that. Well, why not? Well, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, you're going to, you're getting a job with my company and I'm going to show you. And she was terrified. And then of course, my mother called and said, what are you doing? You can't pull her into that nonsense. 
I'm like, nonsense. I'm going to make you successful. No, no, no. She's doing just fine. She's a mother. And I'm like, she can't be a mother and successful. Well, no, she needs time for her kids. What do they, what does she do when they're at work with school? What does she do? Well, she's cooking and she's cleaning. And I'm like, what is it? 1950. So my mother and I are arguing over this. And I, I called my sister. I'm like, this is what you're going to do. I'm going to set you up financially because what happens if something goes wrong? You're not the breadwinner. You have no marketable skill at all. And you're 40 years old. What are you going to do? And she's like, well, I haven't thought about that. I said, honey, guys walk in you know, and ask for a divorce at any time and go, I found a 21-year-old. Here's divorce papers. Where are you going to go? And she's like, well, I don't know. I'm like, you've got to be prepared. So we are so opposite. And our limiting belief system was the exact same. Our parents told us, this is what you're going to do. You're going to get a job at the mall make babies, marry the local boy and live next door. And she followed it and I did not. And defeating your limiting beliefs is stepping back and going, what do I want? I know what my mother wants. I know what my father wants. I know what my family expects me to do, but what do I want to be and where do I want to go? And I have a lot of clients that end up on drugs and alcohol because they denied what they really wanted and they followed their limiting belief system. I have, for example, I have a client who, he is an accountant, probably one of the best accountants you'll ever meet. And he says, I hate what I do. I hate numbers. I hate the computer. I am people oriented. I love people. And I sit here all day and I look at screens and numbers. I said, what do you want to do? He goes, can I be honest? I said, yes. He goes, I want to be a counselor. And I said, you're an accountant making almost seven figures. You realize you're going to make 40 grand. He goes, I don't care. I want to help people. I said, all right, let's do it. And he goes, what? What do you mean? I said, let's do it. Let's figure out what you need to do to go back to school and become that counselor. And he goes, I'm terrified. How do I tell my family? I said, I have to tell you, you're 50 years old. It's okay to do what you want to do at 50. And you have enough financial security to do it. So I had to get him out of this limiting belief system he had since he was a child. He's 50 years old going, my mother's not going to like that. I said, trust me, your mother's 75. I think she'll be just fine with whatever you do at this point. You need to do you. And that's how you defeat the limiting belief system is you go for something different. Go for what resonates. So that's an interesting challenge because folks who have not listened to what resonates for them for a long time, it's so hard sometimes to filter out like what is you and what is everybody else or like what do you think you should be doing to whatever, right? So how do you help people get centered to do that, Callie, and to really calm down the outer chatter to go, oh, this is me. This is my voice. This is my feeling. I make it a game. I say, let's play a game. And they look at me and they go, okay, because a game is just fun. It's not serious. It's not, I'm not committed. I said, I want you to create me a bucket list. If you could do anything or be anybody, I want 25 things you want to do or be before you die, just hypothetically. And the first thing they go is, well, I don't have 25. Because I always ask for more. I know if I ask for 25, I get 10. Okay. And I send them home with it. And I say, I want you just to play. And I don't want you to be restricted. Now, you know, if you're a barista at Starbucks, don't tell me you want to go to the moon. If, if you're happy being a barista, you're not going to have the financial ability to do that. But if you have a plan to get there, I want to know what it is. And they come back and it's so interesting because the first two or three are, you know, well, I want to watch my grandbabies go to college, right? Okay, great. Well, you have no control over that. So that doesn't count. Well, I want to I go 
do something else that's for someone else. Okay, well, that's not you. Then they start to get into what they want. It's like the first three or four or five are what I'm supposed to hear and they're supposed to say. And then it's like, bam, I want to learn to scuba dive. Well, wonderful. So now I have an action step. What do you need to do to scuba dive? Well, I need to get this academic piece. I need to have the hours in the water. Okay. How does that sound? Well, I could do that. So I pick the things that are easy they can start with. And then it's things like, well, I want to go to Italy. Okay. Well, what do you need to do? Well, I need to research it. I have to save some money. Okay. That's an easy plan, right? And then somewhere right around the middle is the career change. And it starts to come out in pieces. And it'll be, well, I really want to help people. And I'll say, okay, so how do you help people? Do you mean like an airline stewardess? Oh, no, no, I don't want to do that. Okay, well, then what do you mean by help people? Do you want to work at a missionary? Well, no, I don't want to do that. Okay, what does that mean? And then they start to break it down. And as they're doing it, I'm listening and I'm taking mental notes. And I'll say, well, what do you really want to do? Well, I really want to be a whatever, fireman. Okay, that's really cool. How do you have, what do you have to do to be a fireman? Oh, well, you know, I can't really do it. And I hear, then I hear the butts. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And I write them down. And as they're talking, and I'll go through each one, I'll say, okay, now let's go through each butt. I can't become a fireman because I'm out of shape. Well, earlier you talked about going to the gym. So if we added going to the gym, wouldn't that get you one step closer to be a fireman? And they go, oh. And then I break it into small little goals. Let's just start there. If you start working out, why don't you take the test for for fun to see if you pass it? And they'll go, what do you mean? Take the physical test just to see if you pass it. What could that hurt? And I give them small little goals. And as they start to obtain the goals, they're like, this is really cool. I did this. Because big, career change is big. But a small little piece of that can be in little chunks. And then when they have the wins, then they go for the big thing. The cool thing about that, too, is when we do those things, Callie, all of a sudden, and it might just be six months of little wins, and you look back and you go, I never thought I would be here where I am today. And the truth is, you could have just kept doing what you're doing, and six months is still going to pass. You might as well try something and be further down towards something that really enlivens you. Yeah, and it's so interesting because people always say, I can't. I can't do that. And when I was writing, I've done a ton of manuals for the school I have. I have the largest online school for addiction studies in the world. I've written copy for manual, after manual, after manual. And then I sit down to write my book on my life story. And I'm like, I can't do this. I can't. And I sat there with it. And my husband, well, why not? I'm like, I don't know. I just can't. And I, I, had, I would just sit there and with a plank page for hours. And he goes, what's the problem? I'm like, I don't know. So I called my friend who's a psychologist and I said, I got an issue. She said, what I said, I got block. She goes, what's the problem? And I'm like, I don't know. And I'm sitting there talking to her and I'm like, you know what? If I put this out, it's going to bring shame to my family. And then it went back to limiting belief. And she goes, Callie, everybody knows how bad your family was. You talk about it constantly. There's no one doesn't know. And I'm like, really? And she goes, just do it. And all of a sudden I started writing and it just started coming out. And she goes, act like you're not going to publish it. Do it as a therapy exercise. Okay. And I just wrote, 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 wrote. And then it got to be overwhelming. So I just started voice recording and I just started doing it. And a friend of mine goes, let me transcribe it just for fun. And I went, just for fun. He goes, yeah. So I sent it over and then it came back and I'm like, this is a book. The whole thing was a book. And he goes, yeah, maybe. And I, and I said, well, what now? And he goes, now we put it APA style. So we did it. And then my husband sent over his part. 
And it came back and he's like, Kelly, this is ready. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready. He goes, your book's done, publish it. And I went, are you sure? And he goes, just do it. And it went wildfire. And I was afraid because my PR team said, this is going to tank your career. You're going to lose everything. And I said, why? And she said, well, your, your books is F this, F that. It's a little much. And she goes, you talk about some stuff in here that's pretty, pretty wild. And I said, but it's all true. And she goes, yeah, but it's pretty wild. I said, but it's all true. If it's true, why not put it out there and see if it helps somebody? So he did. And it did. Tired of feeling stuck and ending with the same result? Want to know how Sarah can help you with one-on-one or organizational coaching? Then book your free discovery call at sarahbox.com forward slash contact. Now back to the show. So that is a great example of you don't know. I mean, when I think about like, not just anybody, but even for myself, the things where you go, I'm not sure I'm ready or I'm not going to do it. But I always think about, but if you don't do this, so if you hadn't written that book, I think about the people Mm -hmm. who might not ever have been helped because they didn't get to hear Callie's experience and what you did and how you did something. I'm thinking, you never know who you're going to help. And so just put it out there, you know, and you're not being malicious. So, but I do, you know, in today's environment, so I think like limiting beliefs, they can be a burden. But now when people are kind of freaked out with everything going on economically and all the changes going on, how do we get out of that like place where people are in that survival thing to getting back to where we can really thrive, whether it's in an economic crisis or pandemic or just in life in general? So one of my core beliefs, and this is not my family's belief, so I had to learn this on my own, is that money is universal life force energy that we exchange for goods and services. And what happens in times of scarcity is we hold on to money, we hold on to everything, we're out there hoarding toilet paper, which I don't know why, and we don't want anybody else to have for fear we won't have. And what happens is, because I believe in universal life force energy, the universe goes, oh, you don't need any more money, you don't need any more abundance because you have 37,000 rolls of toilet paper, you're abundant, you don't need anything else from me, you'll be fine. So instead of sending a message to the universe of, I need more so I can help more people and do more things, you send a message that says, I don't need anything because I'm going to hoard this. You can't hoard stuff. So I did just the opposite. When I had a whole week where you didn't make one sale, not one client, not one student, not one book sale, nothing. And everyone's calling me going, what are you going to do? And I go, I'm spending money and I'm focusing on abundance coming in, money going out, money coming in. So I reached out to everybody on Facebook and I said, I need to know who's in scarcity, who really needs my help. You know, if you have an iPhone and you're at home, you're okay. Who's homeless at the moment? A friend of mine reached out to me and he goes, I'm in my car with my dog. I said, what happened? He said, I was in Mexico, they're shutting down the border. I threw everything in my car and just started driving and realized I have nowhere to go and I have $400 to my name. I said, okay. So I said, what are you doing? So strategically, we figured out a place for him to go. Send him some money, send him some supplies, and everything is great. I think maybe I sent him $250, and four hours later, I got a sale for $2,500. So that's universal life force energy for me. That's how abundance works. I help you, you help me. And then I reached out on Facebook and I said, Who is a small business owner that's struggling? Who's struggling? And a friend of mine's friend owns a shoe store in 
Washington State. And she said she has all these shoes. Of course, nobody's buying shoes right now. You know, it's not a staple. So I said, send me the link. And I went online and bought a pair of Birkenstocks. Beautiful shoes that came. And I also helped a personal trainer friend of mine who has no work. I said, hey, I have to move. You, you know, you're a big buff guy. You want to help me move? He goes, oh, yeah, free workout and get paid? Absolutely. So he's in. And then uh, there's another girl I met on Facebook who, who uh, just allows homeless dogs to come into her house. And she goes, I really need dog food. And I can't get to the store and because I'm not working. And she says, I'm a potter, so I could buy a piece of pottery. But I said, listen, let me just send you dog food and dog bones and puppy pads. And so I spent 100 bucks and I sent her enough supplies for a month. So just by doing that, Universe blessed me with a few more students and a few more clients. And we just moved it around. And if everybody would just do that, we would all be in Thrive. It's when you stop and go, I'm not surviving. I have to hold on to what I have. You're not going to get anymore. Because you're not willing to spread it around. Whoa. And that is, a, <laughs> well, no, but that's true, right? And it's counterintuitive. And I, it's been interesting, as you say that, I'm thinking about the people that I've been in contact with who are trying to do small things, you know? So supporting a local restaurant, buying gift cards from a shop or something so people can shop online or reaching out, you know? And I had someone call me and say, I'm going to get fresh vegetables. Do you need anything? I just gotten some, thankfully, we just got restocked. But um, but those little gestures, right, that go, we can help. We're well at the moment. Everything's fine. And it it starts making the world feel bigger again and mm -hmm. less freaked out, right, when you talk to people. And I've noticed that, like, I'm in the podcast, and I know you know this from your podcast, you can talk to people from anywhere in the world. And so yesterday, I'm talking to someone from Australia, and they're in the same boat we are. Mm -hmm. They're doing the same thing. They're on shutdown, you know, and, and I'm just thinking, it doesn't matter where you are, you're dealing with the same thing. And it's so helpful to listen to how upbeat people can be and how they're being very creative about the whole, how are we going to do this and less is more. And, and I'm going to, this is so off the wall. I'm just going to tell you this, since you believe in the universal law and all of that, this I know that you're not going to go, what a whack job Sarah is. Uh, <laughs> but I've been thinking, the last couple of days unbidden about like way back when we first started doing trade, like with the mm -hmm. Orient, not we, the US, because we weren't here, but really going and getting tea and spices, right? And I think about how now all of us, we're used to having those things, right? That, mm -hmm. Those are in our cupboard when we go to them. And I thought, but you know, at one time, that was a rarity to have those. And so it just all the time went, so Sarah, what's your takeaway here? I'm going, look small and appreciate it. Just appreciate it, right? I have coffee. I have my family. But <laughs> I have my neighbors and business. You know, I have clients that I'm helping. So I really love what you've done to be very proactive about engaging people, finding out how to help. And I know that I've I've been listening to people and, and clients saying, we're having these back kind of back office conversations, what's going on, how can we help each other? And it's so cool to hear that. And I'm curious from your perspective, what you think will be like when the big push of fear starts to subside and people get used to like, okay, we're not dead, you know, we're navigating this regardless. What do you think is going to be the norm? Do you think we'll come back to being a norm? Do you think we'll be pro, um, profoundly shifted? Or what do you think, what are you thinking based on your experience and your education? I think it's going to be different by city. So Miami's mentality is very different than anywhere I've ever lived. I've lived in New York, I've lived in LA. 
down here, they're not living in survival mode. They're still exercising. They're still outside. Last night I went Facebook live. It was the coolest thing because I'm right in the city. So the whole city's all lit up and I'm laying here watching the Ozarks and waiting for season three for two years. And I hear this bang, bang, bang. And I'm like, what is bang, bang, bang? And all of a sudden it sounds like a DJ. And I open my door and there's about eight different condo complexes. We're all 40 floors and a higher. And everyone's on their balcony. There's a DJ spinning. Everyone's got lights flashing. They're using their phones. They're yelling, Miami. Somebody's got a drum and a cowbell. And I was like, oh my God, they're really having a good time. That's Miami's mentality all the time. So I think when we're set loose, it's going to be party central. The drinking's going to go up. The drugs are going to go up. Everyone's going to have a party. That's just Miami's culture. Is that going to happen everywhere? Probably not. I think the different cultures of the city might be more conservative, but we're not conservative. We're party central. I think Vegas will be party central. I think people are going to start traveling. They, you know, got restricted. I can't go to LA. I can't go to, to Vegas. They're going to get on a plane and go. And I think we're going to see a surgence in spending money on entertainment and fun because we lost the arts. And I find this interesting because I have a husband who's a musician. And we've been together 12 years, and I've heard everything from, you guys should play our club for exposure. We're not going to pay you. We want you to work, drive all the way here, and, and play, but we're not going to pay you, all the way up to him getting paid. And I think now people are going to value the entertainers and the comedians and the musicians and the artists because they're what get you through in a bad time. and You don't have it. You're watching reruns of Adam Sandler and Kevin James and Kevin Hart. And I had tickets for Adam Sandler. I was so excited and I couldn't go. And it's like that, I think we're going to start valuing more humanity because we lost it. And I think you're going to see people spending money finally on the arts where it should be and less on garbage from China. And I think we're going to see that. I hope you are right because that really, <laughs> well, because that's the enriching part of life. You yeah. know, I just, um, in February, I'm thinking, whoa, it's already the end of March. But in February, we were able to go to San Francisco and see Sting and mm -hmm. um, his production there. And then two weeks later, right, no travel, no productions, anything. And I looked at my husband, and I said, oh my God, timing is everything. Thank God we got to go because who knows when we're going to be able to do that again. And it's so, it's just a part of life. And we need that. We need yeah. those creative folks. I love that vision, though, of everybody out and playing music and stuff. You're like the Italy. Yeah. Yes, you're down there on your balconies doing your music thing going on. Well, I Googled what, what happened in Brickell, and I noticed the DJ. So the way we're lined up is, is there's a front row in front of us about probably 15 that I can see easy condos and then i'm in a row of 15 so i'm a block from the water and then behind us is another 15 and then the main row another 15 so i hear this dj and i'm like this is a really good dj and i started googling and i'm like oh my goodness he's at sls which is caddy corner behind me he's he's hopping from place to place and he's dj until he gets kicked out and he got kicked out at sls and then he was over here the other day and i'm like he's in our building either here or next to us and it was so cool because it's like a, you could hear it like a big dance party and what a cool idea. So he's out there spinning and people can hear it. And he, now he's got tons of press. So he was out there playing with his mixes and the cops, you know, they come and shut it down. I think like two or three hours into it, they came and shut us down. But they're, they're pretty lax here in Miami. It's, Miami's very, you know, fun and culture vibe. And the clubs don't open till midnight here. 
So, you know, dinner's at seven or eight at night, and then you go to your club at midnight, and it's open at eight o'clock in the morning, and then bam, you have breakfast alcohol. So we're a party city, and I think everybody's going to be out as soon as this is lifted. Well, I hope people can take, even in the meantime, those sparks of like life, like you were talking there, wherever they are, to find those and really enjoy the moment and what's going on, wherever they are. Yeah. Because- It'll come back. So as we're wrapping this up, Callie, what are some words of wisdom, regardless of where people are listening to you from today or the day they're hearing this, what are some parting words of wisdom that you would give based on all of your ups and downs and your like cycles up to success and your attitude that'll help people kind of move from where they are to where they actually want to be? First thing is reframe what you see. So if you think it's this horrible, devastating thing, stop and go, wait a minute. Let me reframe this. What can I take from this that's a positive? And how can I utilize that to get to the next step? Instead of getting stuck in the negative and woe is me, whether you lost your job or you know, your boyfriend left you or whatever happened, stop for a second and say, what's the good in this situation and what did I learn? You also have to learn the lesson so you don't repeat the same thing over and over again and then get into the next you know, level. But not only that, also you have to, if you have a goal, you have to do it. You cannot die with your music inside you, as my husband would say. If you have a passion or something you wanna do, don't say someday I'll do that. Some days a day of the week. Do it and go, I did that. I had a goal at 14 to publish a book by the time I was 40. That was my goal. And when I hit 40, I didn't have a book. And I went, "Uh uh-oh, now what? You know, I need to do that goal because that's on my bucket list. And I wanted to say I wrote a bestseller. That was my goal. So even if you think you can't do it and you want to do it, just start doing it. Little chunks at a time until it's done. Even if people say you can't do it, do it anyway. We are using the same playbook, sister. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much. I so appreciate you taking time to be on the podcast. I know our listeners are going to take away so much value from what you've shared. And here's to your health and wellness, Callie. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me. You've been listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author, change agent, and strategic vision coach, Sarah Box. You can grab the show notes and find out how to work with Sarah at sarahbox.com forward slash no labels, no limits podcast. We'd love this podcast to reach as many people as possible. So please remember to rate, leave a five-star review and share the podcast with someone you think would get value from this conversation. Until next time, keep taking those daily action steps to align your purpose to your principles and achieve your goals in business and life.